Welcome to the Vintage Podcast. Well, we have a real treat for you today. We have a treat from the other side of the world. I was delighted when Richard Flanagan, author of the Man Booker Prize winning The Narrow Road to the Deep North, came into the podcast studio to talk about his seventh novel, First Person. Richard Flanagan, I'm so pleased you've come. You've just got off the plane, right? I'm delighted to be here, Alex. You know, if, if I collapse into Catatonia, we we know your listeners will hear it. Yeah, yeah that's okay. Yeah. We're going to just skate over that. That's yeah. not going to happen. No. We're going to be too excited. We're talking about your new book, First Person. And it's just such an interesting conceit. And also quite different from anything you've done before, I think. Just tell us a little bit about the, the setup for the book. The book's about a, a young uh, would-be novelist who gets offered the gig of ghostwriting a con man's memoir in six weeks for $10,000. He accepts um, and he, he thinks he's superior morally and intellectually to the con man, but um, each day he goes in and he discovers ever more that he's teetering on an abyss and he's, he becomes unsure whether he's drawing the con man into his book that he's writing or whether the con man's actually drawing him into his life and uh, actually um, taking possession of his soul. Just to be clear, the con man, this isn't, we're not talking about somebody who's fiddling the gas meter. This is kind of fraud on a grand scale. This person is a kind of national villain. Yeah, the the story has its roots in an experience I had as a young man when um, I had no money and was a would-be writer and um, I had a good friend who was working as a bodyguard for this notorious con man come corporate criminal who was in fact the uh, the biggest corporate criminal we ever had. He embezzled about a billion dollars in today's terms. And the idea that he was working on infrastructure and that was the idea with the your real-life guy, wasn't it? The real-life guy had um, taken over this charity organisation that had gone round... Um, it was about four or five people and they used to put up posters advising people to use hairnets if they're operating lathes or, or give little lectures about the necessity of bending your knees if you used heavy weights. And um, this con man took it over and within a couple of years transformed it into this little sort of semi-secret army of about four or five hundred men, uniformed young men that had... Um, an air wing, it had submarines, it had um, Idiar Min's helicopter and it had purported CIA links and it was a sort of, um, they did sort of extraordinary and extraordinarily inexplicable things like they were the first people to jump out of a plane in Australia with a dog attached to them and things like that and um, and uh, so they went and uh, and then the whole thing went belly up and there was the biggest manhunt in Australian history for this uh, criminal. They finally caught him on the other side of the continent, um, got him, extradited him back to Victoria and he was in the Melbourne Watch House for about an hour when he got a phone call from Australia's leading celebrity agent saying, don't sign anything, I'll cut the deal. And he cut a very lucrative deal, as you do in those situations, for... Um, a celebrity memoir with a publisher. Mm. And a year or so went by and he, he produced nothing, being criminally incapable of putting any sort of thought on paper. And um, 
the publisher put ghostwriters to work with him and um, they all ran away in horror because he's quite an abhorrent human being. And then they said, if you won't work with our people, uh, you find a writer, at which point um, he didn't know any writers. But my mate said, I've got a friend in Tasmania who wants to be a writer. And that's when and I got the phone call. And you published nothing at this point. You had oh, I'd published a couple of non-fiction books, but right. I, I uh, to. But your career as a novelist hadn't no, really no. taken hold. No. And you were working as a labourer, I think, weren't you? Yeah, I was working as a labourer, mm-hmm. and um, things weren't going well. Um, and the, the, I'd written some non-fiction books, and that you know they were very small, and um, so I was in a parlous sort of way, and. Um, I needed the money, so I accepted. And uh, he killed himself three weeks later. But I guess I was haunted by him um, because in so many ways he seemed to anticipate this strange world that's come into being over the succeeding decades. And I, I couldn't really make sense of what had happened to me in that time for many years. But um, I began to think how in his narcissism, his solipsism he anticipated so much of what was coming Um, These global scandals these big corporate scandals uh, Well um, yeah in the sense that um, we were sold vast elaborate corporate lies um, but also in the sense that we're now in a world where um, Mark Zuckerberg has said uh, there's no... uh, that. Privacy is no longer an acceptable social norm, and he said how we will um, henceforth um, not have one identity at work and another at home. We'll only have our online identity, and that what a wonderful thing this is. He talks about the integrity of having a single identity, um, and if you think about it, that's the darkest dream of totalitarianism, made our daily reality and carried in our back pockets and and so on. Um, Friedrich, who was the con man I'd worked with, he tried to uh, control people and have absolute power over them. And the way he did that was uh, finding out everything about their private life and then turning it to his advantage. Um, It seemed to me the world we're in now tries to do the same thing. Um, And Friedrich... I mean, he was obviously a a con man and specialised in lies, and we now live in a world where reality is denied by lies and that the greater the untruth, the more willing people seem to believe it. And I I thought how what's really new in our world today is not these attacks on truth, because power's always done that. But what's new is this attack on the very concept of the truth, the idea that truth itself is a worthless and irrelevant idea. That's very new. And um, again, I thought um, Friedrich had sort of anticipated that. So I wanted to use these bare bones of what had happened to me so many years ago and invent a story that um, tried to ask questions about our world now because I I think that's the job of novels. They have no answers, but hopefully they ask some of the necessary questions. So it's, it's really fascinating the way that kind of long-ago experience, which in its own way has a kind of um, timelessness, you know, a con man, a rip-off merchant, exposed, is actually sort of coming up to real cutting edge of modernity and all these questions of identity and truth. 
And so years later, you think, yes, I need to write a novel about this. Um, that's that's so. And you were saying earlier, it's it's very different. Uh, I mean, I've always tried with each book to write a completely different book because I think um, if you keep on repeating the same style, the same techniques, in the end, um, what was once a, a way you had of speaking truthfully about something becomes hackneyed and cliched and, and you're no longer speaking truthfully. You're, you're actually retreated into um, meaningless phrases and at that point you're deceiving yourself and far worse, you're cheating the reader and you can't do that. And I think you've always... Uh, I I, th- I think if you try and re- reinvent what you're doing each time, you're struggling to find the right word, the right image, but you think about every word and every sentence and you think about what it is you're trying to say and, and report on as accurately as you can. It forces you to go back to what you believe is the truth of what you're writing. Do you think there is something that unites, not necessarily all, but some of your work, though, as in recurring themes? I'm thinking about a book like Gould's Book of Fish, which is kind of about a sort of malleable reality, and it is about a kind of grandiosity and power and malfeasance. And that seems to sort of surface, albeit in an entirely different way, in this book. Are there things that you are, are of abiding interest to you? Well, I think the, I mean it's, that's an interesting observation, but it's more for readers to make than me. I, mm. I don't really dwell on, you know, what are the enduring traits or, or obsessions of my work. I do think um, I've always been interested in the power of story, and I believe that fantasy and invention are very important. I think. Um, as a species, what defines us as different is the way we seek to divine the world through story. <clears throat> and we call those stories at the beginning the, the superstition and then religion and then the tribe and family and then they become the nation, politics, science and so on. Um, and in all that, the, 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 the highest form of storytelling we have, the most sophisticated form, is the novel. And um, so when you write a novel, you, you, you are writing an entertainment, but you're writing an entertainment that arises out of a profound intellectual and spiritual and aesthetic tradition. And uh, I think we're in a strange time when there's now a fear of story. And so this cult of solipsism that's now so strong where everyone's encouraged to be the first person um, on their social media to to seek whatever answers they think there are in themselves in, in every form of individual madness from road cycling to mindfulness. Um, there is a connection between that endless solipsism and the strange pandemics of our times of sadness, of loneliness, of the feeling that something fundamental is being hollowed out of our out of our society, and I think those two things are actually profoundly connected. And in literature, that's expressed itself as the rise of the this dogma of the cult of the literary memoir, which, particularly in North America, is grounded in this idea that um, uh, realities outstrip fiction and that therefore the novel has no place in describing mm. our world now 
and the only literature of worth is literature that can be grounded in experience, in what you know, and that's the memoir. Now, I mean, I've got nothing against memoir as form and uh, it can be as great as any other form of literature, but I do find it very strange when people make a dogma and an ideology out of one form of literature. And I think there's a fear of story, um, which is very odd because you, we now live in a time where there are all these poisonous stories, which are lies. Um, but I think the, the, the answer to those is the story is fiction, which at its best is liberating and transcendental. Uh, transcendent, I should say, in my jet lag state, but <laughs> transcendental. But that's uh, so. I, I, I think that the, you know, that's that's the role of the novel, and that's why I wanted to write a novel that masquerades as a memoir, to to have people question what a memoir is, what what this idea of making uh, ourselves the first person in our own worlds, whereas whatever the truths of this world are. They don't really exist within ourselves. They exist within others. And um, that's why we go to literature, to discover we're not alone, that we're not one but many, that implicit in each of us are uh, an infinity of possibilities, the the wretched, the wicked, um, the glorious, the beautiful. Um, there, There are many lives we could have lived were only allowed to live one, but it's good to be reminded all the other possibilities that we could be. I think writing should always be about all that we don't know. I wanted to ask you about that idea of the the found uh, novel, if you see what I mean, the letter that's found and is is really a, a, a fiction uh, that we saw in things like Richardson, for example, in the kind of 18th century yeah. novel, or the traveller's tales, the Defoe, the kind of spooky stories. Um, in a way, you're sort of picking up on that again, aren't you? To, that, that sort of idea of the novel that is really a fiction but pretends to be an actual document. Um. I hadn't thought about it that way, but um, I, I've always liked the wildness and um, ill-discipline of the 17th and 18th century novel mm. before it became much more formal and um, uh, tried to, you know, when it fell into the dreadful trap of ultra-realism, because really the the most, the, the one thing that's never realistic is reality. And so it, to have realism as a way of conveying reality is always a, a dreadful error, I think, as an aesthetic who, mistake. who comes from, from Tasmania, I'm wondering if there's the way in which you see yourself or are in some way Australian writers beyond the kind of novel just as a sort of cosy European bourgeois tradition of the sort of drawing room. Well, I always saw the novel as a form of liberation. I, I don't know where that places me. I, I, I think um, there's the, the, there is an Australian experience um, that you belong to as an Australian writer, but you do also belong to that universe of letters and that grand tradition of the European novel. But what you do, what I do notice about the European novel in the last couple of decades is the loss of belief in story as the fundamental building block of the novel. And and I think um, a novel without story is like a it's like a jellyfish pretending to be a white pointer. You need that mystery of story 
um, because stories what liberates the novel from the ambitions and character and aspirations of the writer. Um, Tolstoy sets out to write um, a mean-spirited and nasty, small-minded book about um, a woman who's an adulteress and is rightly punished, and he ends up writing one of the great books of literature in Anna Karenina because story, um, the story liberates him from his own pettiness. And every writer, um, there's a smallness about us all as human beings. I think it was Elvis, the great American literato, who said... Um, when I sing, I'm touched by God. And I don't think you have to believe in the divine to understand that sometimes the best of what a human being can do is in their art. And it is something, um, it, it's where they tap into what we were talking about earlier, the many possibilities of what it is to be fully human and not just what it is to be Elvis, who was a, a very ordinary truck driver. Um, have you, what have you been liberated from by writing your books, either this one or, or any of them? What is the liberation for you? Oh, well, I I grew up in this benighted island, which for a quarter of its modern history was a totalitarian country. It was a gulag of the British Empire. All my people were convict people. Um, it's the site of, you know, the first attempted... Um, genocide by a, a state against an indigenous people that very nearly succeeded. There were 50 survivors from whom today's um, indigenous people in Tasmania are descended. And I, there's a, there's a thing Chekhov said that resonated with me very deeply. He said his whole life was a battle to squeeze the serf's blood out of him drop by drop. His grandfather was a serf. And uh, I've felt the same struggle and it is um, it is the written word that I feel has allowed me to finally become a free man. Richard, thank you very much. That was Richard Flanagan. Don't miss new audio on extracts and podcasts by subscribing to the Vintage Podcast page and leave us a review if you feel like it. <laughs>